Hello, Dr. Deanne Ross here. I'm a love theorist. This is part of the series from my bookshelf and the book I'm looking at today and sharing some excerpts with you from is by Martin Luther King Jr. I, and it's called I Have a Dream, Writings and Speeches That Changed the World. The book is a collection of those writings and speeches um, and it's edited by James Washington in 1992. I'm wanting to um, focus on Martin Luther King as one example from the civil rights movement in America of mass scale attempts at nonviolence uh, and to really explore what this idea is and how he understood it. So I'm not going to try and read all aspects of some of his more well-known speeches, but I'm going to mainly focus on parts of speeches that speak to nonviolence nonviolent resistance and love. The first one on page 29 is called The Power of Nonviolence and Martin Luther King gave this speech in 1958. And I'm just going to read how he was thinking at that time, around the time of the Montgomery boycott. And some of you may be aware that at, uh, in a very volatile issue of race, racist institutions and deep-seated segregation in America, uh, Rosa Parks, who was a very respected local person in Montgomery, refused to give up her seat on the bus for a white person. And many things happened from that, one of the most significant for our purposes is a series of boycotts and, and protesters being imprisoned until until the laws of the land actually agreed that the segregation in the buses, among other places, was in fact unconstitutional. But it was not a straightforward struggle. It does speak something, though, to the importance of being organised and being nonviolent and so this is on page 30, and I'm speaking um, directly to what Martin Luther King was saying. From the very beginning, there was a philosophy undergirding the Montgomery boycott, the philosophy of nonviolent resistance. There was always the problem of getting this method over because it didn't make sense to most of the people in the beginning. We had to use our mass meetings to explain nonviolence to a community of people who had never heard of the philosophy and in many instances were not sympathetic to it. We had meetings twice a week on Mondays and on Thursdays, and we had an institute on nonviolence and civil change. We had to make it clear that nonviolent resistance is not a method of cowardice. It does resist. It is not a method of stagnant passivity and deadening complacency. The nonviolent resistor is just as opposed to the evil that they are standing against as the violent resistor, but they resist without violence. This method is non-aggressive physically, but strongly aggressive spiritually. King goes on to say that the point is not to humiliate the opponents in the struggle, but to win them over. Another thing that we had to get over was the fact that the nonviolent resistor does not seek to humiliate or defeat the opponent, but to win their friendship and understanding. 
there's, this was always a cry that we had to set before the people, that our aim is not to defeat the white community, not to humiliate the white community, but to win the friendship of all the persons who have perpetrated this system in the past. The end of violence, or the aftermath of violence, is bitterness. The aftermath of non-violence is reconciliation and the creation of a beloved community. King was very aware that one action was not going to solve a systemic issue of racism. And he continues, a boycott is never an end in itself. It is merely a means to awaken a sense of shame within the oppressor. But the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. Then we had to make it clear also that the nonviolent resistor seeks to attack the evil system rather than the individuals who happen to be caught up in the system. This is why I say from time to time that the struggle in the South is not so much the tension between white people and black American people. Uh, The struggle rather is between justice and injustice, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. Another basic thing that we had to get over is that nonviolent resistance is also an internal matter. It not only avoids external violence or external physical violence, but also internal violence of the spirit. And so at the centre of our movement stood the philosophy of love. The attitude that the only way to ultimately change humanity and make for society that we all long for is to keep love at the centre of our lives. Now, people used to ask me from the beginning, what do you mean by love and how is it that you can tell us to love those persons who seek to defeat us and those persons who stand against us? How can you love such persons? And I had to make it clear all along that love in its highest sense is not a sentimental sort of thing, not even an affectionate sort of thing. As a Baptist minister, um, much of Martin Luther's thinking was influenced by the teaching of Christianity on love. He continues, I'm aware of the fact that there are persons who believe firmly in nonviolence who do not believe in a personal God, but I think every person who believes in nonviolent resistance believes somehow that the universe in some form is on the side of justice that there is something unfolding in the universe, whether one speaks of it as an unconscious process or whether one speaks of of it as a personal God, there is something in the universe that unfolds for justice. And so in Montgomery, we felt somehow that as we struggled, we we had cosmic companionship. I really like that, cosmic companionship. And this is one of the things that kept the people together, the belief that the universe is on the side of justice. This is on page 32. uh, A couple of sentences before King explained that uh, it's this idea of love that he's thinking about is very similar to agape. Um, Agape says you must go on with wise restraint and calm reasonableness, but you must keep moving. Coming forward to another writing now, perhaps uh, perhaps Martin Luther King's most famous speech, I Have a Dream, 1963. And he, part of the dream, 
speech is uh, here. I'm happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. People had gathered in their tens of thousands for a march on Washington, D.C. for civil rights. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon of light, of hope for millions of American slaves, African slaves, who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to the end of a long night of that captivity. But 100 years later, the black American is still not free. 100 years later, the life of the black American is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the black Americans live on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the black American is still languishing in the corners of American society and finds themselves exiled in their own land. So we've come here today to dramatise a a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a cheque. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was the promise that all people, yes, black people as well as white people, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of colour are concerned. Instead of honouring this sacred obligation, America has given a black American people a bad cheque, a cheque that has come back marked insufficient funds. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation, and so we've come to cash this cheque, a cheque that will give us upon demand, the riches of freedom and the security of justice. A little further on in the speech, King says, let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence, Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. Very much influenced by Gandhi. Page 104, a little further on in the speech. So I say to you, my friends, that even though we must face difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons and daughters of former slaves and sons and daughters of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood and sisterhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but the content of their character. I have a dream today. 
and further on in the speech. And when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and hamlet, from every state and city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and women, white men and women, Jews and Gentiles, Catholics and Protestants, will be able to join hands and to sing in the words of the old American spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. A year later, uh, Martin Luther King was awarded the Nobel Prize and these are some comments he made in his acceptance speech. So this is in 1964. When asked by an interviewer what the significance of being the recipient of this much-coveted award was, Dr King replied, the Nobel Award recognises the amazing discipline of the black American. Though we have had riots, the bloodshed we would have known without the discipline of nonviolence would have been frightening. I must ask why this prize is awarded to a movement which is beleaguered and committed to unrelenting struggle, to a movement which has not won the very peace and brotherhood and sisterhood, which is the essence of the Nobel Prize. After contemplation, I conclude that this award, which I receive on behalf of that movement, is profound recognition that nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral question of our time. The need for people to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to violence and oppression. Civilization and violence are antithetical concepts. Black Americans of the United States follow the people of India and have demonstrated that nonviolence is not a servile passivity, but a powerful moral force which makes for social transformation. Sooner or later, all people of the world will have to discover a way to live together in peace. If this peace is to be achieved, people must evolve for all human conflict, a method which rejects revenge, aggression and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. And a little further on in that speech, he says, page 110, I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway into a hell of thermonuclear destruction. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. That is why right temporarily defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. I have the audacity to believe that peoples everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, and dignity, equality and freedom for their spirits. I believe that white self-centred humans have torn down. People other-centred can build up. Today I come to Oslo as a trustee, inspired and with renewed dedication to humanity. I accept this prize on behalf of all people who love peace and brotherhood and sisterhood. Three years later, King makes a speech called A Time to Break Silence, where he makes direct links between America's involvement in the Vietnam War and their 
avoidance of, of attending to the justice and peace in their own country. This is on page 138, a little way into the speech. My, th my reason for mentioning Vietnam at this time is to do with a deeper level, the need for a deeper level of awareness that grows out of the experience of the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They asked if our nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, and for the sake of hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. Just coming forward a little further. I'm, and this is on page 148. I'm convinced that if we are to get to the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revelation, revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa and South America, only to take their profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries. And I say, this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn for them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into veins of peoples normally humane, 
of sending people home from dark, bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defence than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. On page 150 in the same speech, A Time to Break Silence, King says, This call for worldwide fellowship that lifts neighbourly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all people. When I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as a supreme underlying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to the ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the, in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another, for love is God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth, not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will will become the order of the day. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate or bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the wreckage of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Tonby says, Love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word. I wanted to finish this selection of King's excerpts from King's speeches with the one he gave in 1966 on nonviolence, the only road to freedom. And this is an excerpt starting on page 127. I'm convinced that for practical as well as moral reasons, nonviolence offers the only road to freedom for my people. In violent warfare, one must be prepared to face ruthlessly the fact that there will be casualties by the thousands. In Vietnam, the United States has evidently decided that it is willing to slaughter millions, sacrifice some 200,000 people and $20 billion a year. Just coming forward a couple of pages to talk further with this kind of historical context that King was writing in. He talks about strategies for change, nonviolent strategies for change, page 130. The American racial revolution has been a revolution to get in rather than to overthrow society. We want to share in the American economy, the housing market, the education system and the social opportunities. This goal itself indicates that a social change in America must be nonviolent. If one is in search of a better job, it does not help to burn down the factory. If one needs more adequate education, shooting the principal will not help, or if housing is the goal, only building and construction will produce that end. 
To destroy anything, personal property can't bring us closer to the goal that we seek. The nonviolent strategy has to drama has to be dramatized of the evils of our society in such a way that pressure is brought to bear against those evils by the forces of goodwill in the community and thereby change is produced. The student sit-ins of 1960 are a classic illustration of this method. Students were denied the right to eat at the lunch counter so they deliberately sat down to protest their denial. They were arrested But this made their parents mad, and so they began to close their charge accounts. The students continued to sit in, and this further embarrassed the city, scared away many white shoppers, and soon produced an economic threat to the business life of the city. Amid this type of pressure, it is not hard to get people to agree to change. Further on, on page 131, King continues. Our position depends a lot upon more than political power. It depends upon our ability to marshal moral power as well. As soon as we lose the moral offensive, we are left with only our 10% of the power of the nation, that being our numbers, population-wise. This is hardly enough to produce any meaningful changes, even within our own communities, for the lines of power control the economy as well, and once the flow of money is cut off, progress ceases. The past three years have demonstrated the power of a committed, morally sound minority to lead the nation. It was the coalition moulded through the Birmingham movement, which allied the forces of the churches, labour and the academic communities of the nation behind the liberal issues of our time. All of the liberal legislation of the past session of Congress can be credited to this coalition. Even the presence of a vital peace movement and the campus protest against the war in Vietnam can be traced back to the nonviolent action movement led by black Americans. Prior to Birmingham, our campuses were still in a state of shock over the McCarthy era and Congress was caught in the perennial deadlock of Southern Democrats and Midwestern Republicans. Black Americans put the country on the move against the enemies of poverty, slums and inadequate education. When when black Americans marched, so did the nation. The power of the nonviolent march is indeed a a mystery. It was always surprising that a few hundred black Americans marching can produce such a reaction across the nation. When marches are carefully organised around well-defined issues, they represent the power which Victor Hugo phrased as the most powerful force in the world, an idea whose time has come. Marching feet announce that time has come for a given idea. When the idea is sound, the cause is a just one, and the demonstration a righteous one, change will be forthcoming. But if any of these conditions are not present, the power for change is missing also. A thousand people demonstrating for the right to use heroin would have little effect. By the same token, a group of 10,000 marching in anger against a police station and cussing out the chief of police will do very little to bring respect, dignity and unbiased law enforcement. Such a demonstration would only produce fear and bring about an addition of forces to the station and more oppressive methods by the police. 
Our experience is that marches must continue over a period of 30 to 45 days to produce any meaningful results. They must also be of sufficient size to produce some inconvenience to the forces in power or they go unnoticed. In other words, they must demand the attention of the press, for it is the press which interprets the issue to the community at large and thereby sets in motion the machinery for change. Along with the march as a weapon for change in our nonviolent arsenal must be listed the boycott. Basic to the philosophy of nonviolence is the refusal to cooperate with evil. There is nothing quite so effective as the refusal to cooperate economically with the forces and institutions which perpetuate evil in our communities. In the past six months, simply by refusing to purchase products from companies which do not hire black Americans in meaningful numbers and in all job categories, the ministers of Chicago have increased the income of the black American community by more than $2 million annually. But again, the boycott must be sustained over a period of several weeks and months to assure results. This means continuous education of the community in order to support, to ensure the support can be maintained. People will work together and sacrifice if they understand clearly why and how this sacrifice will bring about change. We can never assume that anyone understands. It is our job to keep people informed and aware. aware. Our most powerful non-violent weapon is, as would be expected, also our most demanding, and that is organisation. To produce change, people must be organised to work together in units of power. More and more of the civil rights movement will become engaged in the task of organising people into permanent groups to protect their own interests and to produce change in their own, on their own behalf. This is a tedious task which may take years, but the results are more permanent and meaningful. There is no easy way to create a world where men and women can live together, where each has their own job and house, and where all children receive as much education as their minds can absorb. But if such a world is created in our lifetime, it will be done in the United States by black Americans and white people of goodwill. It will come to it will be accomplished by persons who have the courage to put an end to suffering by willingly suffering themselves rather than inflict suffering upon others. It will be done by rejecting the racism, materialism and violence that has characterised Western civilization, and especially by working toward a world of brotherhood and sisterhood, cooperation and peace. That's that's the end of my sharing of some of the excerpts from I Have a Dream collection of essays and, and speeches by Martin Luther King. And I have been so inspired by these ideas as much because what really King is doing is speaking to an alternative to violence in in really troubling, really violent historical circumstances. And much was achieved uh, during his during his time, and I don't for a minute believe that um, this was only one person's work, uh, but he was definitely the spokesperson on many critical occasions. And his death in 1968 had very profound effects on the civil rights movement. Okay, that's all for me for now. Thank you for listening.